All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Blast podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Tyler Wagner. As always, today's sponsor is Authors Unite. And if you want to become a successful author, Authors Unite is the place to go. So head on over to AuthorsUnite.com to check out a free case study that will teach you how to do exactly that. And now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Authors Unite show. Today, we have Taru Clavel with us. So welcome to the show, Taru. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Grateful to have you on. So to, to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit more about you and what you do? Sure. So I have been an education journalist, a speaker, and an author. Actually, my first book just came out last week, and it's called World Class. It was published with Simon & Schuster imprint, Atria. And it's basically about my life. I raised three kids in the local public schools of Hong Kong, then Shanghai, then Tokyo, and then Palo Alto. And that was 2006 to 2018. And then moved back to my hometown, New York City, just last summer. So it's basically for anybody who cares about educating our children and what we can do to make our country and our children more globally competitive. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. How long did it take you to write the book? Well, that's a really funny question because I was living in Palo Alto when I submitted my book proposal to several agents And in Palo Alto, it's like in the middle of Silicon Valley, right? So everything happens yesterday. You know, people work 24-7 and it's so fast. And then traditional publishing is a little more old school. So when I signed with Atria, they said you have a a year to write the book. And I kind of looked at them and I was like, what? I thought I would get like a month, you know? And it it was this weird kind of... I, I, it was it was just a bizarre contrast in terms of where I was living with how much time I was given to write the book. Got it. To- totally. Tell us more about Palo Alto. I mean, uh, is it is it just like wild? Is there a different energy out there? It's totally different. I mean, I feel like growing up, you were always told to pave. Like, you know, you start working in the mailroom and then you work your way up. And, and you know, if you have a business, then you have to have a solid business plan. Whereas in Palo Alto or in Silicon Valley, it's you have an idea, go for it. Just go for it now. Don't think about it. Just go. It doesn't matter if it's not making any money. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, it's kind of the wild west, which is actually what I felt like when I was in Shanghai, but in a, in a much more, I don't know, like historically entrenched US cultural system, I guess, embedded in capitalism. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I've actually, I've never been there. I, I lived in San Diego for a few years, which I think is, it's potentially the opposite, actually. <laughs> but it's, it's a little slower, I think. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a little more mellow. I feel like California, right? They, they try to break it up into multiple states. So it is, it is very diverse. <laughs> yeah, like South Carolina slow, but it's like, <laughs> it's a different slow. Um, so, okay, so now, I'm just curious about this. Comparing it to New York, like what's more fast paced? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's just different because New York has is just is just an older an older U.S. state, um, mm-hmm. and 
if you talk about education, which is my area of specialty, even the educational institutions are much older. Um, so I think it's, it's harder to break a culture when it's so entrenched historically, whereas California is just, it's more geographically uh, spread out. It's, it's, I don't know how much more diverse it is in terms of a state, but um, it's, it is just a newer place. You know, like I said, like Silicon Valley, I think it works there because when you have an idea, you can just go for it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I was just curious because I know, I mean, they're both fast paced, but it's just, yeah, I guess it's just different. I, New York is like so crowded for me. It, it's, <laughs> I, I'll get like an anxiety attack there. So it's, no, it's, you're totally right. I mean, it's, you know, in New York, I feel so spoiled and I love it because I live above a subway station. I'm right above an express subway. If I need to get anything, I just, you know, raise my hand and there's a taxi right there. I, I walk within two blocks of where I live, I think there are like four or five grocery stores, a CVS and a Duane Reed. I mean, I think there are four bagel places. It's like, you're totally spoiled. And living in California, everything was car, car, car here, car there. Even if it was 10 minutes, you know, round trip and with stopping and everything, it's, you know, it can easily with your kids be a 30 minute ride. And it's, it's just, a, it's, it's very suburban, you know, compared to, to New York. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so I want to, let's talk about the book more. I, I want to tell you too, I think I may have told you this in the email when we were planning it. I, I love your book cover. I think it's awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Great, great cover. It has like a simplicity about it, but it like gets the process <laughs> to like, and I'm just a simple guy. Like just, <laughs> I, I love just, I always like things that don't even have like a logo, you know, just like a business, <laughs> just the name. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, so, you know, obviously you can't tell us like the whole book, but like what, what were some of the things that you found in how like Asian students are outpacing, you know, us? Like what are, what are some of like maybe the top things that you found that they're doing that we're kind of lacking? Sure. Well, actually I was on the Today Show last week and this is something that I talked about, which is this really like this can-do positive mindset, which I'm not saying it's anything new. In the U.S. we're always talking about positive mindset, but the difference was when I came back to the U.S. in 2016 with my three kids, suddenly I started hearing people, including my daughter, saying, oh, I just, I'm not good at math. I'm bad at math. Or parents saying to their kids, well, I, I never really read, so, you know, I don't expect you to read that much. Or, you know, I don't really know history, so we don't really talk about it. And in Asia, where we came from, in Shanghai and in, in Japan in particular, there was no, I'm bad at math. It just didn't exist. They were learning expectations set in the classroom and everybody had to hit them. And that was it. You had to know your multiplication, your arithmetic. You had to learn how to read and write. You had to re recite. You had to learn your grammar. Um, and there were no excuses for it. And everybody hit those standards. And it was, it's interesting. It's almost like we can make excuses here um, is what I felt like. So that was a huge difference. Um, I would say uh, the community involvement and the teaching of kind of ethics and respect in the Japanese classroom was something that was very, very different and something that I, you know, frankly, I wish we could learn in the U.S. So in the Japanese classroom there, or in the schools themselves, there are no janitors, there's no cafeteria staff, the kids all, you know, the kids have pencils and paper and, and they have to take that to school, but they also have to take a rag because they clean the blackboards, they mop, they sweep, they clean the toilets, uh, they serve themselves lunch and they clean up after themselves. And it builds a sense of community and respect. You know, the kids are humble. There is no task that is too great or too small for them, and they take care of each other, and that really spreads into the wider community. Um, and I think a great example is after one of the World Cup games, 
um, all the Japanese fans apparently were photographed because they brought their own plastic bags and they cleaned up after themselves. And I, I believe the rest of the stadium, um, you just, you know, it's, it's a community effort and everybody takes care of one another. And it's, it's a, it's a beautiful way to think about raising your children. Um, mm. And, and thinking, you know, you're part of something bigger than yourself, which I really loved. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. So something, and this just popped in my mind, so I'm curious, and then I'd love to yeah. get to like your, kind of what you concluded, if you will, um, in the book. But so to me, right, I would feel like, yeah, I think back to my time in school, right? And it definitely, definitely wasn't like orderly, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, it was yeah. uh, pretty... I don't know. I would just say fun, like just kids speaking. Like it was kind of wild a little maybe. <laughs> and, but, but then, you know, when things are almost like too orderly, it, it could kind of uh, push down or push away creativity. Um, and I have no idea, right? I, I haven't like tested this. It's just kind of a theory that popped in my mind. So mm -hmm. you think like maybe there's a middle ground or it just, it seemed to me by your response there, are you kind of leaning towards like, you know, the way they're doing it over in Hong Kong and, and the other places over in Asia, like, is that the, that's the way you, that you believe it's better? Or what kind of was your conclusion in that? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And we have so much to learn from one another because we are all culturally, historically, economically, politically, our, our countries are so, so different, right? Um, but you bring up the orderly, and I feel like there's this misconception that in some East Asian countries, because they are so high performing, that the kids just sit in rows and, and don't move. Um, oh, that's actually how I like, kind of see it. I think. Yeah, right? And I, and, and I definitely witnessed a lot of that. But I'll tell you, one of the things that my kids always tell me is that they loved recess, in particular in Japan, because when it's recess, the bell rings, and the entire school has recess for you know, 10 or 15 minutes, and the kids can roam around the school wherever they want. They can go to the, the playground or the, the courtyard, and it's free play with kids of all ages. And you can go to any classroom, and if you have you know, an older friend or younger friend or a sibling, you can go there as well. And there's a lot less kind of helicoptering, whereas the intervention in the U.S. schools is much more, I would say, frankly, it's more overbearing. And there's been a lot of studies about this, academic studies about how the interventions in the Chinese and the Japanese schools are more intentioned and hands-off. And the U.S. teachers are much more, especially when it comes to socializing, they're, they're intervening a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And my kids say they miss that. They, they miss that. And I should say also, in, I would say when we were in Shanghai, the PISA scores came out for the, for the first time. And that's a test that measures the academic abilities in math, science, and language arts around the world for 15-year-olds. And Shanghai beat everybody, uh, like 70-plus uh, world economies, by a lot. And when I talked to some of the teachers about it, I said, aren't you so proud? And they said, what are you talking about? Do you see this school? We don't have enough arts, music, physical education. And Xi Jinping um, and the leadership of, of China, they're making so many efforts now to really add that kind of extracurricular level. So I think it's only a matter of time before that happens and we really see the results. And I would also add that what I found fascinating because, you know, these, like I said, these countries really do get criticized for not being creative, but I loved observing my kids' art classes in Japan because even though it may be old school, 
they learn exactly how to use every kind of paintbrush, charcoal, pastel, color mixing. They know how to use every tool in the toolbox exactly, including hammers and nails and everything that I never learned, frankly. They all know how to learn to use a sewing machine, which you know is like home economics, but in how to sew a button. They learn all the tools. And something else that I think is interesting is that Japanese teachers are required to pass a physical fitness exam that includes swimming every stroke from the breaststroke to the backstroke, crawl. They have to be able to go to a playground and twirl on the bars, and they have to be able to sight sing and sight read music and play it on the piano So and play the recorder. So I bring all this up because all the, the reason why they have to do this is because all Japanese school children know how to play the piano, play the recorder, sight read music. You know, they know they know how to use all the art materials. They know how to swim every lap, um, every kind of stroke. So I do kind of feel like they get a bad rap, frankly. Um, yeah. And so, you know, and so you asked me a question, where did, I, where did I net out? I think we all have so much to learn from each other. And there are amazing things about the U.S. classroom in terms of the flexibility and the creativity and the innovation. Um, but, you know, that comes, I feel like, sometimes at the expense of our not teaching our kids some basics that that probably every educated person should know got it okay and then you also say uh here that you know your kids they developed a love for learning what what age were they kind of when they developed that oh i think they've always had it i think oh wow. so okay. yeah i mean you know my kids started getting homework when they were three years old and it wasn't you know really serious you have to sit down and you know mom is yelling at the kids kind of thing. They got a, a little notebook and they had to copy over either a Chinese character or a number um, like four times in a notebook. And it's just a part, of, a part of, of their daily life. And I should say also, because I found that the learning expectations were considerably higher in the classrooms in Asia, kids are, are meant to struggle, you know, and they overcome struggle and these challenges. And they grow this resilience and there's like, it's very motivational, you know, like if you work really hard and you win your soccer game, right. Then you like, you want to play again, even though it was really, really hard. Whereas mm -hmm. if you don't put in your effort and you kind of win, it's maybe not that interesting. And certainly if you put, if you don't put in the effort and you lose, then it's like, it's so not interesting. Um, you know, so it's the same kind of thing in the classrooms. It's these kids, my, my kids and, and all the kids, their, their classmates, they're challenged every day. And there's a story actually in World Class that I tell where I interviewed a Chinese um, student who was educated in Beijing through middle school. And then she came to the U.S. for high school and later became a double major in economics and math at one of the top universities in the U.S. But she said when she was in Beijing, you know, for homework, if she, or I should say in math class, she would get A plus B equals C. And then for homework, she would get D plus E equals what, right? So you take it a step further, you're challenged with your homework. Whereas when she said she came to the US, in class, they would learn A plus B equals C. And then for homework, it was the same thing, A plus B equals C. So she never felt very challenged. Got it. Yeah. That, see, and that's why I'm starting to lean towards more, you know, their type of, of schooling because it, it took me, and, I, and again, I don't know, everybody's life's a little different, right? So it's not uh -huh. just like 
pin it on the school 100%, but I didn't really develop a love for learning until like I dropped out of school and started doing my own thing and like reading books mm-hmm. and like, actually like really like enjoying reading. Like I remember hating reading in school. Like, yeah. I, but it, I think it was more because like, what they were giving me to read, I didn't really like, or it was like, it was the way that it was positioned. I think positioning, especially to a younger individual is pretty important when, when, you know, when you're younger and somebody puts in front of you and they're like, you need to read this book. You know what I mean? Or, or yeah. something like me, that was almost like I had like this natural instinct to rebel. Yeah. And once it started to get more to like the, you know, developing a love for learning and like reading the first book when I was probably 20, it was called the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Uh, yeah. Was, yeah. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, that was one of the first books I read that like I actually enjoyed and felt like I, I, I like got a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. And it just changed everything for me. Then I just, you know, think and grow rich and just like every, you know, just kind of classic business book, if you will, I just went on this like hunt and just like read them all. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, now I have that love for learning. So either way, if that kind of school system, if you will, that they have is, is getting that to be developed uh, in, you know, when you're, let's say six or seven years old. I mean, my gosh, if I loved learning when I was six or seven, I, I can't even imagine how much further I had. <laughs> <laughs> now you know um, yeah so whatever they're doing is working you know I, yeah no I think it's really interesting and it's not you know you're not alone I hear that all the time and I'm, I'm very honest in my book too I didn't have a love of learning and that's why I was eager to take my kids overseas because there was something wrong with the way I was educated and you know and there's so many gaps in my education that I've had to make up for later with this love of learning you know um, and you know I never took a geography class I never take a I never took a European history class I think um, because apparently I didn't do that well in chemistry in high school. They didn't take, let me take physics. And people are like, those two aren't that related. They said, that should not be a prerequisite, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of crazy that I never had to study Newton, you know? And, and there I am. And I made it to the Ivy League. Like, that should not be, in my opinion, you know? Um, yeah. and, it's, and, it's, and it's a shame. And in what you just said, your whole narrative, it's, it's really, really common. And it's a shame because learning inspires us it's right it's what keeps us going until hopefully longevity and until the day we pass on right so we we have to change these things i feel like oh yeah well and yeah i mean you know you wrote a whole book on it so (laughs) the passion that you have in it so what um when you're not doing this now and this is the thing like i i I like to just get to know the guests a little bit like outside of work but yeah you and we're similar in this way like i like my work is an extension of myself. Like I, I love doing the podcast. I love working. Mm-hmm. So, and I can tell that you love, you know, what you do as well, but let's just say when you're not doing that, what do you, uh, what do you like to do? I guess in your quote unquote free time. <laughs> um, let's see. I love being in New York because there's so much to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't appreciate it. I don't think as much growing up there, you know, but now as an adult and especially having been away from it for 12 years, I could walk around the Metropolitan Museum all day long and not even pay attention to anything. I just feel like I could get lost in the place. Mm. Um, I love going to the theater. Um, I'll go to concerts at Carnegie Hall as often as as I can. Uh, I'll just, sometimes it's just like walking the streets of New York is so fun. I'm one of those people, I love the bus. I'll take the bus. I'll take the subway and just people watch. Um, And yeah, I just, I love exploring and, and, and seeing and learning new things. I think it's, it just, it's, it's like, it's brain candy. 
do you have any sort of um and i i'm in complete agreement I, i'm like a a cardio person so i love like hiking and just like new kind of adventure type yeah. stuff there's definitely yeah. something it, there's something related to that for me with just like work like if i if i don't do that in the morning it doesn't my day just feels a little off um, yeah no i'm totally the same way i wake up at 5 30 every morning and i go exercise from six till seven before my kids awesome. yeah, i was gonna yeah. ask you can you tell what's the morning routine look like Oh my God, the morning routine. Well, unfortunately, you know, and I heard this about productive people and I'm like, no, I don't have insomnia. I'm just, I'm just productive. So I end up waking up at 4.30 in the morning um, and I just feel like I just have so much in my head and I start working. And then typically my alarm goes off at 5.30, which Mm. then prompts me to get ready to go exercise. And then I leave at 5.45, hit an exercise class and I am trying to tone it down because I think I'm kind of addicted to spinning. And I sit in a dark room and ride a bike that doesn't go anywhere. And I feel like it's my meditative time. You know, it's, Mm. I get so much thinking done there. It's like my, like people say they get a lot of thinking done in the shower. I feel like I get it done listening to like really graphic uh, rap music and (laughs) techno music at like six in the morning, which is like totally inappropriate. Um, And I do that till 6.45 and I get back and I, get my kids in order. And then, uh, and then I, I sit down and I start doing work. That's my typical morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and wait, did you say though, when you first wake up that first hour, four thirty to five thirty, you do a little work then as well? Oh, that's my, yeah. I get like key work done because no one interrupts you and no one's really sending you emails. Right. The only things I get are kind of newsletters at that time, like the New York times, wall street journal. I feel like they pump it out at that time. Um, And a lot of the education uh, newsletters and blogs that I subscribe to, but typically it's just you know it's a quiet time. It's yeah. it's it's great. There's a a little note on that just in case you you weren't aware, and it's just because I'm t- I'm taking this course right now with this guy named Stephen Cutler. Uh huh. Called um, Zero to Dangerous, and it's all it's like this whole course on like how to get into flow states. Oh and yeah. He actually talks about this where. You know, and, and I, I struggle with it a little because my, my first thing on my mind is just to work out. But <laughs> in reality, what you're doing is actually, it's already, it's like proven, he talks about it in his course, that when you first wake up and you're kind, you kind of have that little bit of like haziness or foggy, uh-huh. that's actually kind of you in like a deeper level of like consciousness. Like, you know, you're not fully awake in that like first 20, 30 minutes. And apparently for an activity like writing or very creative focused work, um, if you were to just go right to work, right when you wake up, it sounds strange, maybe for most, because most, you know, they want to, they think they want to wake their mind up in some sort of way, but that is actually a hackable way in a sense to get into that very deep flow state when you are still a little hazy from sleep. Um, so he, he like recommends it. He's like, first thing you should do right when you wake up like four thirty, like you do and like do like two 90 minutes, uh, flow just like straight. And obviously, you know, you got the kids and, and stuff. So there are some things that, you know, obviously would hinder that, but if you can, what you're doing is actually a proven thing that does work and helps you get like your best work done. That's so cool. See, I'm like a science experiment that went right. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I love that. It's just like trying new things, you know, what works. So. Um, yeah. And you, you kind of stumbled across it. So that's cool. <laughs> cool. Love uh, that. So listen, it was awesome having you on, uh, really excited for your book. Uh, so la- last couple of questions I have, yeah. uh, like website, best place to contact you, best social. And yes. then, uh, obviously I think the book's available everywhere, but if you have a place where you prefer people go to grab it, 
Where is that? Um, yeah, so you can find me on my website, which is my name, www.teruclavel, T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L.com. And I'm on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And I love supporting our independent booksellers, but my book is available on at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, hopefully your local bookseller as well. And I, I really, I, I, like you mentioned, I am passionate about this topic of education and how we can, you know, help our kids. Uh, it's, it's especially with so much technology, it's, and, and, and their exposure to so much more than when I was growing up. It's a tough time. It's a really tough time to teach, parent, raise kids. So please contact me and let's have these discussions. I, I'm always open for even the most contentious of conversations. I'm just happy to have it because hopefully we'll move the needle in one direction. Yes. Either way. Yeah. Thank you again for coming on. Oh, my, my pleasure. So, so nice to speak with you.